everybody and welcome back to Beware the Artist. I am Jeremy Jersa and this week on the show we have Adam Amram. So Adam, want to tell everybody who you are and what is it that you do? What's up Jeremy? It's really awesome to be here. Um, I'm a painter, uh, drawer, mostly painting, but yeah I'm an artist right now living and working in Palo Alto, California. Um, moved out here last August from Philadelphia, so first time living and working on the West Coast, which has been really nice. Um, but yeah, it's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. What would you say are kind of some big differences that you're finding, you know, going from such an East Coast world to moving out there to the West Coast? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. I feel like people warn me about the light being really attractive here and really beautiful mm -hmm. and very alluring. And I can attest to that. I think it has to do with the um, the way the sun rises and sets and yeah everything maybe it's just like seeing this side of the world with new eyes but um, it's really beautiful out here uh, with the pandemic and COVID life it's kind of been hard to articulate what's different and the surreal aspects of living out here compared to just the change in my lifestyle um, I would say mostly also I've just been taken by the vegetation out here like the tropical i mean in, in philly there's some beautiful trees and beautiful beautiful vegetation to take in but it's i feel like i've been a city kid for a couple of years now uh coming from baltimore and then philly and then over to palo alto the silicon valley it's a very different it's a very different terrain yeah um, i can i can imagine um so so what exactly is your kind of background in terms of where are you from where you went to school um you want to elaborate on that for those of our viewers that don't really know you for sure. Um, yeah, so I was born in Israel, um, Haifa, Israel, and moved when I was three and some change to Georgia. Um, I grew up in Georgia and went to school in Baltimore, Maryland, went to MICA. Um, it's where we met one another first. Um, so my undergrad, yeah, I, I was at MICA, and then I graduated and went to Philly to kind of start uh, a new practice, start up a new practice in a new city. Uh, had plans when I was in Baltimore to kind of stay behind. The gallery scene there was really exciting and a lot of DIY spaces. Um, so I thought maybe I'd stay behind with some friends there. Um, but a group of my friends were excited to kind of make a trek up to New York. We weren't, we were halfway committed and decided to settle in Philly, which was a really amazing decision. Um, and then just kind of got started planting roots in Philly and worked there as an art handler, had a bunch of different studios, and then came to Palo Alto last August for an opportunity to supporting uh, my partner who's in grad school. So that's why I ended up here. But Amazing, amazing. Um, so the, the Philly art scene in general, it's, I feel like you don't really understand it unless you're kind of in it. Um, it it's so accepting and just so vast at the same time it's it's um it really supports the artists in the city um could you speak to that a little bit for sure um well i'll say i'll backtrack before i get into the beauty of philly's art scene i'll say <laughs> that what i loved about philly's art scene is that it mirrored some of the stuff that i was excited that was happening in baltimore which was mm -hmm. um uh there was like gallery there was gallery openings and nights to go see art as a city. Um, mm. I think every maybe second Thursdays or first Fridays, I'm kind of conflating the two now that I've lived in both places and experienced them. But um, Philly had the same thing started happening at Vox Populi. Um, I, and it didn't start happening. It was just, I started make, becoming aware of it when I moved right, there. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, I really, I really liked basically Vox Populi, uh, it would have these, was it first Fridays or second Thursdays? First Fridays. First Fridays. Yeah. And then second Thursdays would be on the opposite end of town um, at the Crane Arts Building, mm -hmm. kind of Kensington, Northern Liberties area. Um, but yeah, it's just, it felt like as long as there's a place where there's constant shows happening, constant openings, then that means that it felt for me, the dialogue was just 
uh, it was a perpetual dialogue that mm -hmm. artists were having with each other, getting to see work in person, getting to see each other in person, right. just kind of, you know, that celebratory nature that fuels art practice. Now, this might, this question might kind of fall on deaf ears just because of, of COVID, but um, do you see any kind of relation to that out on the West Coast? Um, you know, I know things are, are very isolated. Um, have you had much of a chance to kind of settle into the art scene out there? I will say the deaf ears are true. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, I, it's been really nice to be out here. I could totally, I would say that unlike Philadelphia and Baltimore, being on the West Coast, and I'm in Palo Alto, so about 45 minutes out to an hour out of SF, um, I would say that the myth about having a car on the West Coast is definitely rings true for me. I've, I'm like a bicyclist, so I've been, I've been, it's been a challenge to kind of navigate to and from things without having to plan a day trip around it. Um, that being said, in spite of the pandemic, uh, the De Young Art Museum did this really amazing, um, had this really amazing program called the De Young Open, which for the first time in, I think ever in their institution, they had, uh, it was their 125th anniversary and they like did a pitch for an open call to Bay Area artists and had a huge show um, right when COVID was kind of decompressing and before the second wave. So I got to experience one community-based opening that was massive and like in a museum institution. So it felt like, it felt like finally another side to that kind of, you know, that thing I've been wanting of going to an opening and going to celebrate people on this side yeah. of the world. Yeah, but it's, yeah. I would say it's a challenge. It's a challenge just to kind of like navigate. Uh, it's not like you can go by foot, I feel like where <laughs> you have in Philly and Baltimore, but. Yeah, so leading from the kind of openings and that kind of art experience, um, I want to hop into your practice. Um, so if you wouldn't mind just kind of going through what kind of themes are you really exploring in your work? Sure, yeah. Well, so I said I'm a painter, um, but primarily I begin most of my work through drawing. Uh, it's kind of this sort of taking in uh, these ideas and experiences that I, I feel and see in the real world day to day, kind of note taking them through drawing and through uh, compositional scribbles. And then I refine that back at the studio with ideas that are more narrative based. Um, so I guess ideas in my work would be, you know, exploring the harmony and dissonance between humanity and between nature, things that kind of things that kind of mirror each other, mirror existence. Um, but really, I guess themes in my work past, things in my work past the human experience would be the sort of um, the principles of like design and visuals, uh, seeing, seeing past a narrative and seeing into, I guess it's hard to articulate this, but sensory experiences that in their own way communicate narratives. So mm. I guess in my work, you see a lot of um, vague depictions of nature and of in people experiencing that nature. And it's hard to, it's hard to give extra words to that, but, um, and I guess that's why I'm a painter. Um, but I would say, yeah, uh, kind of trying to communicate sensory experiences that each of us may experience and may see, mm -hmm. um, but, sit latent within us um, until we arrive at like looking at a painting or looking at a drawing and then those those feelings kind of come about um, in the mind so I guess I, I look at painting as an inhabitable landscape for the subconscious to see looking looking at an image and letting the mind kind of unravel um, so how are you actually kind of starting these pieces you, you you mentioned a little bit before that you start with kind of the drawing um, at what point from there does it start to develop into an actual painting? For sure. Um, so I keep I, I keep a pretty intense sketchbook practice. Um, basically, yeah, I start with the drawing. I it starts with going out maybe for a walk or taking in ideas, just listening to music, watching movies, uh, reading books, and then I'll make a note um, in the sketchbook. And as I start my studio day, or just when I'm back at home, I'll be sketching and thinking on those notes and then I'll have a series of drawings that I'll take to the studio 
that I kind of staple to the wall near the paintings. And mm-hmm. then I think I begin the painting just trying to, um, trying to, I, I say copy apprehensively because I try to copy the, the drawing, but it's that transition from uh, a sketch to the painting where everything gets awkward. Um, and yeah, and then it's about just kind of dismantling that awkward, um, what's it called? Lost in translation energy where yeah. things, you're trying to revitalize that sketch and keep its like vitality when you move it to the painting and that all dies. So you have to reconstruct it. And I think that's where the paintings start. So one thing that I, I really love about um, some of your work is that it, it, it can become almost impasto at points and you have this very thick kind of layering of paint that almost becomes kind of sculptural in the the smooth but still very smooth smoothness of the forms um and then there are flatter areas within the painting um can you can you talk to that process for sure um yeah i i guess speaking to the materiality of the paint i began um i began making paints from pigments uh, about I would say six years ago, started this process. Um, and uh, I think it was a teacher show, point me in the direction of uh, Guerra Paint and Pigments in New York. Um, they have, it's like an amazing pigment shop um, and all these salt, like solutions to mix with acrylic binders or oil binders. So what I do is I've kind of amassed this collection of raw pigments and I'll mix those into a binder, usually acrylic, I mean, usually oil, but actually this past year I started working in acrylics just because I was working inside of the home for first half of this life. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, work in, I'll work in raw pigments. I'll, that kind of gives the paint a body and this kind of gritty texture. Mm-hmm. And as you start to incorporate the binder, you can, you can decide how thick or how viscous you want the paint to be. Um, but I'm glad that you've kind of been able to see that through uh, the paintings because it's hard when, when you kind of put a work online that uh, that sort of rostering of the image, making it all flat, it's hard to see those details. But yeah, I'm, I'm, when I'm working, I guess maybe you can relate to this, like I have a direct um, experience with the surface and I'm always studying the surface and trying to let it articulate to me what next to do. Um, and so, yeah, that, that movement between uh, lumpy or curvy or flattened forms or shiny or matte, that all I think is, those are the transitions from one idea to the next within the work. And I really love that that gets communicated. Um, and so I'll end it that by saying, um, I'm always more excited when someone responds well to the work online, because for me, that gives me, that alleviates that stress of that work not being as satisfying in person because I feel like I, yeah. I, the workers are much more rewarding in person. I feel. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine. Uh, I I I wonder how hard it is to actually kind of photograph that work, but you 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 translate it really well. Um, and I I can imagine that that is a frustration for you. Um, but at the same time, like me being a painter as well, I, I can see and I notice those little those little painter jokes, those little moments in, inside the painting. Um, and I think that's one thing that really excites me about the work. Um, how, sure. how about you? Do you do you have that same experience when you're, you're say you're at a gallery and you like, you know, you, you can tell how they applied the paint in that that kind of painterly way that maybe maybe the average viewer won't see. But you're like, I got that. I see you. Um, for sure, for sure. I feel like that's um, yeah, that's a it's a funny way to put it. I I totally that resonates with me. I feel like a lot of I wonder if other artists would agree to this, but I think um, a lot of the language within art within art is artists talking to other artists. It's mm. like there's a certain um, there's like a certain coding that's embedded with artwork that um, really could maybe hit or miss on a viewer to the untrained eye, but I guess when you maintain an art practice, you are going through the mechanisms of building an artwork from scratch and you kind of see small gestures and can trail them back to their origin or trail them back to like an influence or see a nod towards, it's like a, it's like an unspoken thing, but that kind of evokes humor. I think as like art viewers, we're like, ah, oh, that laugh that you spoke about is like recognizing that and knowing that there's a select few people in the room with you that kind of internalized that little secret. Um, 
but those are those are the things that kind of that's what I love seeing about art in person and those are the things I think you kind of miss sometimes online unless you really you really practice viewing online which I think yeah. all of us are a little bit doing right now but yeah I feel like uh with with the pandemic all of us have kind of lost that that in-person experience and, and we we're really understanding how much we've taken that for granted um but going back to your 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 studio process um so as you're working what is the atmosphere in your studio um do you have music playing do you have snacks do you have um i don't know incense burning what's uh <laughs> what's the vibe that's so funny i feel like i was just checking off yeses as you were like <laughs> I've I've definitely done the incense. I've definitely done the snacks. Um, uh, maybe I would say, well, I have, it's funny. I have like this Palo Santo here. That's just, I think there's a fun, there's a fun way. Like when I get to the studio, I like to, there's a ritual component to it. So like the changing into the studio garments, um, the organizing, the, the lunch or the backpack, the reviewing sketchbook the notes I, I have a calendar up at the beginning at the entry of my studio that I kind of I just situate myself when I come to the studio mm -hmm. and sometimes that means um lighting an incense it's not that's not a huge part I don't want people to walk away with being like <laughs> light an incense to start painting but I think yeah just creating that um ambiance that kind of gets gets me going and gets me energized to start making without pause um so a lot of the times I kind of isolate snacks to after lunch um just so i'm not like ravenous um because i've definitely had it where i've just eaten all of my snacks looking at a painting anxiously trying to make a decision mm. um but i usually go to music first um and yeah i have i've been i've just been listening to a bunch of albums on repeat i don't know if that happens to you um but yeah so music's going sometimes i do podcasts um, I have a, a lot of podcasts that I really like. Um, it just depends where I'm at with the work. Um, yeah, if you have to carry out, uh, if you have to carry out something that you know how to carry out in a painting, podcasts are great. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's, if I'm doing something that um, requires like analysis while I'm making it, I can't really have anything but music. And sometimes right. that's where the music stops playing and I don't realize for like an hour, yeah. oh, I have to put something on. Um, I don't know if that yeah. Does that answer? Yeah, I, I've I've done that a couple of times. Not realize, get so lost in the painting that the music has stopped, and you're like, oh, oh, yeah. okay. That's a good um, sign. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I forget who said this quote, but um, it was saying how you start painting in the studio, and you have this audience with you. You have all these voices, and then as you start to paint, as you get into the mode of working, they all start to leave, and then eventually, if you're lucky you even leave um and so that's that's kind of a, a thing that i i try to keep in mind uh during my kind of studio practice um but what what albums are you listening to on repeat yeah um that's a good question i first of all i love that quote i think that was i think that's gustin i'm not sure but I've oh is it that. yeah i think so and i love that um i love that idea because yeah that's that's like that's the most pure way I think of working. Um, but what what am I listening to right now? I'm I'm listening to I've been listening to a lot of Arthur Russell, which is he's a beautiful musician, uh, beautiful mm -hmm. songwriting and lyrics. Um, but I've been listening to uh, this album "Show Some Emotion" by uh, Joan Armand Trading. I always like butcher her last name, but it's so good. It's it's like very energizing and it's also very like lovely and kind of tender so listening to that um i yeah it, it really ranges listening to some bill callahan um mm. a lot of different music uh really i think i try to mimic the energy i'm going out like if i'm kind of if it's contemplative like the work that i'm working on and i'm not necessarily sure what's happening i try to listen to something that is very instrumental so i'm not suspended in other stories or narratives because i feel very impressionable and i love music for that in the sense mm -hmm. that it forces me to consider uh little ideas and little stories and i kind of swallow that up like a sponge and take it in filter it, and put it back into the work a lot of the times but that's really dangerous for me when i'm uh not sure what i'm doing with my work because it'll send me in just a terrible tunnel and i'm just like what 
was that? But yeah, I don't know if that answered it, but I love, yeah, I would say if people have to walk away with one album to go check out, I would say Show Some Emotion. I really love that one. Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you started to hint on it a little bit, but um, I feel narrative is something that is pretty important um, within your work. Um, but at the same time, you, you do leave these scenes that you're creating very open. Um, can you speak to that relationship a little bit? For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think when you're, well, I'll speak for myself, when I'm painting, I do have a narrative in mind. I'll, for example, I'll have I'll have a series of ideas that I want to connect, um, and I'll use the painting as a sort of uh, a sort of body to tether all these ideas together. Um, and I think through that practice, the there's not a really cohesive narrative, and that lack of cohesiveness enables a viewer to kind of maneuver around certain ideas within a painting. Um, I think it's a little bit. It can become a little bit um, dull when you can't, or maybe when you can see the entire narrative from start to finish, looking right out of painting. Um, but yeah, so I kind of leave this. I leave this. Op I leave it open ended to allow for some navigation. Um, but yeah, it begins with taking in these kind of sensory experiences from the world and trying to communicate. Um, not really trying to communicate much actually, but trying to elicit a feeling. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so yeah, not saying here's what you need to get out from this, but here's how I felt. And maybe that feeling is also, is, is translates from the painting through me through to the painting to you and then back. It's kind of like a bouncing board. But yeah. I'll, say, I'll say this, there's one quote that I love from a contemporary artist, Tal R, who I really admire. Um, and I went to a lecture in Philly um, that he was at, and he said that painting is like, uh, a good painting is like a book that is just like when you approach the painting, and I'm paraphrasing, the book is open um, and all the pages are like viewable at once. You're not turning any pages. The whole story is just open for you. And you have to maneuver from the beginning to the end. You have to do all that work yourself. Um, and doing that work yourself, you kind of arrive at these, uh, at the story that you've put together, not necessarily that the author's kind of, and I, I bet that's not even what he said entirely, but that's kind of what I took from it. And I was like a good idea from, that's how I think about painting and narrative within painting. Yeah, I, I think that's a, br that's a brilliant metaphor for how to actually enter really, sure. really any, not just a painting, but any work of art in, in general. Um, I, I love that, that, that visual. Um, yeah. And building on this idea of, of, of visuals and things that um, kind of push narrative, um, in your work, there's always a kind of skewing of perspective in a certain way. Um, can you speak to how you're using perspective in the works? For sure, yeah. I, I, I'm looking at perspective mostly as a way to enter into those kind of stories, into those narratives. I think the reason there's like a skewed perspective a lot of the times comes from comes from my influences of the pictorial image in the world. So whether it's digitized imagery, um, just like the widescreen of films, the elongation of comic strips, mm -hmm. um, the kind of typography, how typography sometimes follows form and I, so I take elements of that and try to try to render those those ideas into the forms within my paintings. And a lot of times I'll so I, speaking about that backboard of um, communicating something and having it reverberate within the painting. So if a figure standing near an elongated tree, sometimes I'll elongate the figure's torso and legs to uh, communicate this likeness between the figure and maybe the form of nature. So there's this like connectivity between the two. Um, so stuff like that, I'm always thinking about. And yeah. And you, you said in the beginning that you are, you know, mainly a, a painter, but you, you've also created many sculptures. Um, and your, your sculptures are, they, they, they feel as though they are extensions from the paintings. You know, you could, you could take one of these figures out of your painting and, um, you know, you're, you're seeing it 
in three-dimensional forms um and you're still capitalizing on that that skewing almost at, at certain points um could you speak a little bit to your sculptural process yeah for sure um i got into i i, I do dabble in sculpture um i feel like it's how would i say it's like the supplementary to my i feel like sculptors would not like that i'm not uh, it's not a I'm not categorizing it as a lesser of my mediums. It's just what I'm less comfortable working in. Yeah, so I, yeah. do, I do it less. Um, um, and so, but yeah, I found, I kind of approach art making the same way I've approached these sculptures. If there seems like there's an opportunity at hand, I kind of try to take advantage of it. Um, and what happened was when I was in Philly, I was at this, um, they have these Amber Street Studios. I forget what they're called. Um, do you remember those studios in, Think they're in uh port richmond neighborhood um oh the loom the, oh, loom. the loom yeah 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 so i had a studio that was my first studio in philly it was i don't know i got myself into a crazy mess just renting a massive studio in philly and had it for half a year while i could keep up with the rent um yeah. but one day i was leaving the freight elevator and there were these massive blocks of balsa foam Mm -hmm. um that were just covered in like filthy dust and there was a tape sticker that said like throw like i guess throw away um i've never really decided if there was totally garbage or if someone just wrote throw on it but <laughs> i didn't take them right away i just kind of kept watching them like a vulture mm -hmm. and then after two weeks i was like i'm gonna bring these to my studio um i think what happened was there was a fabricator who left the studio building because people just interchanged in those buildings yeah um, yeah and so someone just left those aside and I didn't know what they were going to do, how archival they were, but I brought them to the studio. They're very light. And I think they're about five by five feet blocks of balsa foam, which I try to order, try to figure out how to order some. And they're just way out of my budget that yeah. size. So I was like, I'll just make work with these. Um, and I started carving that foam into forms that were in my drawings at the time. Um, but I think it was, yeah, through it was exactly what you say, trying to maybe this kind of like trying to copy the drawing or trying to render the sketch into a painting or vice versa. Like mm -hmm. it was that for me with sculpture. Um, and for those particular pieces, I started thinking back to these sculptures that I really loved in Baltimore by Franz West. I don't know. Is that who? Yeah. I don't ever know if it's Vest or West, but Franz West. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, we'll just, I guess we both know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Will. But he's got these beautiful works in the contemporary wing mm -hmm. uh, that kind of invite the viewers to s interact with them, sit on them, touch them. And for me, that was radical in a way, like in an institution touching and kind of caressing work. Um, and I wanted that for the sculptures myself. So I put wheels on them. I matched the pigments for the Franz West pieces and attributed to those to the two forms that I was building. And then I think they kind of just sat as works of their own that started feeling like figures watching me in my studio. And yeah, I, I don't know, but for me, as just taking, taking advantage of medium and playing around uh, with form. And I hope that answers the question, but I feel like I just went around in circles, but. No, I, I think I think you capitalized on the question very well. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, Franz West or West. Um, yeah, <laughs> I went and saw a exhibition of his at the at the Tate in 2019, I think, um, in London, and it was interesting to see the just trajectory of his work because it didn't necessarily start with those kind of um, large, almost almost amoebic kind of intestinal type structures. Um, they were there was a lot of found objects and i just found that to be really interesting but that's a weird side note um no i like that i think that that's a lot of what i loved about those like that kind of amoebic as you as a good word for that um i i i, I think i gravitated those not only for their uh, abilities to let people touch them and interact with them but these kind of lifelike organ-like forms mm. that i i try to play around with in my work this like physiological uh like kind of referencing the nature of our mushy membraney tissue type insides yeah um, and yeah for me there's like a mysterious element to that like I, I was just gonna say like i've been the reason i love that and i think i failed to answer this in the initial initial question about themes is it kind of speaks to this ability for consciousness 
that we all have and we all possess to kind of come from like tissue from nothing mm-hmm. like and it's so mysterious and I think that's a metaphor that I feel like I'll always be um, picking away at trying to figure out how that relates and what how to communicate that right right um, that also kind of brings up the the idea of just texture in in general um, sure. and I, I feel as though the sculptures as well as the paintings they they have a very seductive texture um, you want to touch them um, particularly the the, the thicker parts of the paintings and then moving into the sculptures, they feel very slick, very polished. Um, they're catching light in a way that's just jewel-like in a, in a certain sense. Um, was that intentional or was that just a part of the, the material itself with those sculptures? I wish I could say it's totally intentional, but I think that's half intentional and half a byproduct of um, intuition leading me into the right direction, I think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we pick these we pick these mediums, or I pick these mediums for. I'm attracted to them, and I think hoping some of that attraction escapes just the studio and and kind of um, translates to the viewer. But I think what the reason I I gravitate to seductive materials, and most artists do, I think it's this idea that you want to invite people into the work in some way, and it's. You want, I think people and audiences, and I'm talking from my own experience, I respond to work that kind of calls me and whatever sort of, it has this alluring factor, or even if it's really quiet, um, something about it drags me to it and directs me to it. And I think um, something I see in life or I know, I noticed in life is that light in, as, as a thing that makes other things legible um, the way something is lit or the way it's cast in light really draws me to it. I'll like ride my bike places or take walks places or just on drives. And I'll see, I'll gravitate towards looking at something and I'll realize that it's under these specific circumstances, this cast of light from this direction, shooting a shadow along a different surface that's textured, all these like little components coming together are, I realize, wow, that's like why I responded to that. And how can I steal this, these things from life and put them in the work? I think that's like, that's some of the most exciting parts of realizing that you don't need much outside of just the regular mundane, you know, to excite you into art practice, I feel like. So I don't know, that goes back to light. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think you're also bringing up the ideas of um, kind of uh, interactional scale in in a certain sense um which leads me to my next question of how are you bringing scale into the work it's a good question um you know i a lot of the times it's not necessarily for me i don't i i usually work mid-range mid-sized mm-hmm. i would say maybe about i can't even put a finger on it because i i can't i don't haven't really usually worked in anything for for that long basically i move around from size to size all the time um but i have a i have a clear idea when i want to bring something into the realm of immersive work or into the realm of like the space where you can kind of navigate it with your mind where there's like it's 36 by 36 inches but it feels expansive and infinite um and i think that a lot of the times it's really up to what's within the painting the perspective within paintings to communicate scale and space. But I've definitely made work where my goal was to immerse the viewer. I have this one painting called Field of Vision where it's about 130 or so inches, around 140 inches long and 36 inches wide. And it kind of swallows the viewer. And it's all about the gaze and becoming becoming the gaze and leaving, leaving the viewer into the space of a subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always thinking of like the potential of paintings to traverse um, that sort of flattened plane and become immersive spaces. Um, I think that answers it, but yeah, just thinking about how you can manipulate perspective in even the smallest of places in a painting that's one foot by one foot even, and it feels like you can travel through it for a long time. That's, I think, an achievement. I think a lot of people try that, myself included. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking right now specifically um, about one of your pieces, I think it was, I, I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. um, it's a blue room 
from this kind of uh, snowy static on a screen. Um, and just yeah. that it, it leads you into a space beyond what it is that you're looking at. Um, and it allows me to kind of retreat into my mind about these kind of almost meditative spaces that are just kind of translating different realms or different dimensions in, in, in a certain way. Um, and I think you also capitalize that on your relationship with color. Um, do you want to speak to how you're choosing your palettes or how you are kind of reacting to these different parts of the paintings? Definitely, yeah. Um, that painting, I believe, was Starry Night, which was mm. from 2019. Um, yeah, I was thinking about, actually, it's funny that you referenced that one because for me, I was actively thinking about um, making space in, in the most flat space. So like mm. the painting, most of the entire space of the painting is consumed by this flattened television screen that's like resting on a static channel. And I was thinking about a lot about duality and trying to convey that duality of this like vibrant, vital energy that's static and incredibly dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, it exists in this like passive state of just kind of always being energized. And that, what does that mean to just kind of be right. so static, but incredibly dynamic and then referencing, you know, uh, Starry Night through the title uh, to Van Gogh, you know, and that iconic, iconic painting where the sky is the celestial, imagined beautiful space. And I guess, yeah, thinking about how um, colors form, they all can better describe um, this duality that everything in life possesses where um, there's two, there's two or often 10 ways of viewing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think color and uh, that's how I kind of choose color. I think I'm trying to say, does this feel warm or does it feel cool? Or would it feel better if I uh, intentionally made it cool or intentionally made it warm? So communicating like really um, energizing work with these emotive uh, elements that kind of make it fluid for the narrative for to direct the viewer into a certain space, certain interpretation. I don't know if that answers it, but it's kind of, yeah, it that's does, how it yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think, I think you're doing a great job. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> um, so you, you hit on Starry Night, you hit on Philip Gustin a little earlier. Um, yeah. Who are some of your kind of art heroes or just kind of the biggest influences on your art practice? That's a good question. Um, Good question because it's a challenging question. I feel like only yeah. because it's um, depending on the day, I'll probably be excited to, to say one or two other people. But um, I think a huge revelation in my uh, trajectory as an artist was discovering um, the artists out of Chicago, the um, the Harry Who, uh, the Chicago Imagists, mm -hmm. and their predecessors, the Monster Roster. Um, which included amazing artists like Leon Golub, uh, June Leaf, um, H.C. Westerman. Uh, I feel like I could spend my life exploring their work. And I've been doing that. I've been kind of swallowing all the literature that they have on them. Um, but yeah, I would say Ray Oshida from the Chicago Imagists, um, Roger Brown. I mean, I think a lot of people can see elements within my work and connect them to these artists. And there's a reason for that. I think they were, their work explores color so beautifully and so poetically, and also um, welcomes this flattened space where um, I think the imagists are attributed as imagists because they're this longing for the pictorial and the flattened um, and the narrative. Um, and so, I, I operate within that space because I look to painting as a place to make poems through images. So mm -hmm. rendering images to conjure up metaphorical narratives, um, this juxtaposed position of imagery and color to kind of build a world and develop a language. And I feel like all those artists that I mentioned have their own specific languages that you don't, Maybe it's stylization and I'm always a little bit worried about getting into 
uh, pigeonholed by style, but I think yeah. something there's something really beautiful about seeing a work and knowing who it's by. There's like a comfort in their language that you've studied a little bit. I don't know, and this coded element of that. Yeah, language. yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that completely. Um, so that being said, um, and this is a little bit of an on-the-spot question. Um, one piece of art that you have to experience in person before you die anywhere in the world, what is it and why? Damn, this one's worse than the previous question. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like this one's like, actually, this one's giving me like sweaty palms and a little goosebumps. Yeah. Just because like you say, if you say something, I feel like it'll live forever. Um, it's really hard because I think one thing I was thinking about if Jeremy asked me this question, what I'm happy to be prepared. And I don't think there's works that I haven't seen. Um, I'm more inclined to pick a work that I've seen already just because I know um, more about it, but it's so hard. Maybe I'll just, this is like a weird way to answer this, but maybe I would say I want to see before I die more work by Elizabeth Murray in person. Okay. Yeah. Um, I can't put a finger on it. She's, she's got these really beautiful paintings, uh, series of paintings where she describes this coffee mug. That's like, it's like kind of in a cyclical, it's kind of being poured out and being topped off over and over again. There's this infinity. I don't know what the name of it's called, but I, I, I've seen two of her works in person and I can kind of just sit there and look at them forever. They're so they're so generous. They give a lot of info yeah. back. And as makers, and we talked about this before, seeing these little cues um, in artworks, uh, they're, they're the paintings that make me want to run to the studio. And I don't even make work in the same realm, but they're, it's this idea of like constructing um, so sculpturally as a painter that makes me like energized, motivates yeah, me. Yeah. But, you know, I'm going to think on that and maybe I'll, I'll send you an email with a perfect <laughs> answer. Okay. Okay. Um, so as a, as a young emerging artist, um, you know, we're, we're constantly looking for opportunities and uh, trying to get our work out there, trying to be seen. Um, how do you actually go about finding opportunities within uh, the art world? Yeah. Um, I, I try to make space in, my week for looking and going to seek out opportunities and mm -hmm. what that means would be like um what that means would be like making space where i write emails or i'll do some research i, I like to use nifa as a um, database it's a really nice database for artists mm -hmm. uh nyfaa and they have a classifieds ad where there's all these artist listings space listings opportunities submissions um so I would say I do a healthy amount of research to look for opportunities, grants, and things to submit to. But I also feel like it's a lot of cold calling artists, not galleries, but writing to people whose work you admire, um, starting a conversation, whether it's even on Instagram uh, mm -hmm. with people that just, it's like in a genuine way, but also like, you know, just asking questions that are, I think helpful to you, like whether you want to know if they've worked at this gallery, if they have, how long, how do they like it, who the, who would you recommend that's in my community that I should go befriend or go to see their shows. It's mm -hmm. a little different with the with the pandemic, but yeah, I think um, yeah, just trying to be open to opportunities. I would caution people to over apply to stuff. I I wouldn't exhaust yourself because that's so tiring. Um, I agree. So, Right, just like making a healthy schedule of studio practice and maybe one day of the week where you kind of waste time online, looking at mm -hmm. opportunities, considering different things, sending a few emails and then hide from that process. I wouldn't do that too much, but. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like a lot of, and I asked this question because I feel a lot of young artists, they, they get, um, you know, application fatigue and they they then in turn stop making their work because they're just exhausted and they're they're constantly applying applying and then they turn around and then they're like oh i haven't made any work in 4 months um yep. so 
it, it's that balance and, and finding that balance while still seeking out and, and being actively present in seeking out those opportunities. Absolutely. I, that was great. Application fatigue, that was a great thing to bring up. I think for sure. I would say two things is that, yes, when you have, I guess everybody knows like when it rains, it pours, like when you get a rejection or when you get an opportunity, it's like either you're flooded with opportunities that you're kind of stretched thin or you're bombarded with rejections that just completely demoralize your whole essence and you don't want to make art. But I think, I think most artists will take comfort knowing that most artists have felt that and many artists more than others. Uh, um, but I would say, yeah, the best advice on what I do is like trying to communicate artists who I really admire and start up long form conversations uh, mm -hmm. that eventually lead to meeting in person. Um, and I would say every artist that I've met in person, I, and we've had a good conversation, I've, I'm still in touch with. And yeah, so it's, it's kind of fun. You kind of nurture your own community, even if it exists online for the time being. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Um, it kind of leads me to my next question. Um, and this is always a weird one. Um, but at what point in your life did you start calling yourself an artist? <laughs> that, this one's funny because I feel like there's, um, I would say apprehensively in high school, which is so funny because like nobody feels, I don't, I don't think anybody feels super comfortable in high school, but um, I knew that I knew when everybody was kind of communicating where they were going to study in school, I knew that for me, it would have to be an art program. I was just, uh, the curriculum in regular school wasn't anything built around the art world. And I just really wanted to understand art history, take courses in art history um, and study painting in school and printmaking. And so in high school, I would say I was excited to say I'm an artist, but when I, as soon as you get to college, you like, nobody wants to call themselves an artist. Cause I feel like that's maybe cliche and cheesy and your professors certainly don't want to let you be called an artist. They're going to be like, you're here to, you're a student. And I feel like, um, and that's a great way to be, I think in school, but I would say even now, I feel like, I don't know how, how do you re respond to that? Cause even now I always, I say, depends on who I'm talking to. I'll have a different response. You know, I'll say I'm a painter. I'm a Yeah. Well, for, for me, I honestly didn't, um, I didn't really take ownership of the role and the, the name of being an artist until I was like halfway through grad school. Wow. Um, and I was like, yeah, I, I am, I'm an artist and I'm, I'm taking ownership of that. And I was working through a lot of things to kind of more so own my, my studio practice and, and, and kind of stick up for those um, things that, that tend to get, you know, torn down through grad school. But um, I think at that point is when I started really kind of owning it and saying, yes, I, I am an artist and uh, moving forward with that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, there's this perfect, it's like a perfect blend of pride and also like uh, the humbling of like one's ego. Like you have to yes. call yourself an artist. You have to be, you have to situate yourself perfectly in between those two and kind of understand the different ways people are going to internalize what you call yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it's fun to ask people that. I'm always, I always love artists that say they rejected the title artist. I always feel like there's like, it's really exciting and brave when people say that. I was just trying to think, honestly, I was, ex I think I claimed the title before I knew what it came with or mm -hmm. like knew it, you know? So it was like yeah. a little bit of naive energy, but it's something that I'm really happy I had the kind of um, desire to chase that. Right, right. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing that I also like to ask every guest on the show, um, what is one piece of advice that you've received over your career so far that's really kind of impacted you? And what is one piece of advice that you would like to pass on to an up and coming generation of creatives? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, or, you know, it's a really good thing to think about. Yeah. One piece of advice, maybe the piece of advice that I've heard that I really like and I find motivating, I'll just use that for both uh, mm -hmm. answers in the sense. Um, 
I, I was listening to an interview uh, with Lori Anderson, the musician, um, and I would call it Lori an artist um, of all disciplines, but um, she was saying, uh, I'll paraphrase, but she said that dangerous art can be made with a pencil. So what I gathered from that, I think what she was describing was just to be an artist is this practice of resourcefulness and realizing that with even a very limited amount of resources, you can make uh, a lasting and very impactful statement. Um, that so basically, it just means that art as a language, as a as a powerful thing, substance is can be accessed and can be utilized with the smallest of means. And I think that is a really good thing to know for yourself and also to share with younger artists or any artist really uh, as a reminder, just um, you don't need much, but I think it kind of, it doesn't really necessarily have to operate within material, but uh, it's like a, a really important idea can be communicated with very small means. And I think one more thing to think about is, is like this idea of like art practice. Like, I guess this would be to younger artists and I would even categorize myself in that space, but this idea of like, um, art, art practice is just a, con a constant, it's like perpetual state of problem solving. And when you, even if you arrive at a solution, those solutions oftentimes evoke more problems. So it's like, I feel like that's part of the woes of an art practice is just this kind of like cycle of, ooh, like highs and lows and like always being dissatisfied has like the plateau and then like seeking satisfaction in these like little moments of connection where you've solved something and then it gets you to this other problem and it drops you back down so it's just like it's a it's about i guess resilience and the love for problem solving alone which is a disturbing kind of re like realization but yeah i would say laurie anderson's quote is really for me yeah dangerous art can be made with a pencil feels very inspiring I think that's brilliant. And I, I think that's kind of um, the perfect place to to kind of end this. Um, so if people are looking for your work, where will they be able to find it? For sure. Um, you can go to my website, adamonrom.com. And I'm on Instagram, uh, just adam underscore omrom underscore. I wasn't thinking about the longevity of that odd username <laughs> when I made it. Uh, but yeah, and if anybody like wants to reach out like I was advocating to do, feel free to, I, I usually answer every message that I've ever gotten. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, this was great. I'm really happy you invited me on here. Thanks, I appreciate yeah. it. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, if you guys are interested in Adam's work, make sure you go check it out um, and make sure you tune in next week for our next episode of Beware the Artist. Um, Adam, thank you again for being on the show. This was an absolute pleasure and I will see you later. See you later.